I, I gotta say, it was engaging from start to finish. The story of, you know, a, a tough guy trying to protect uh, a young girl is not a new story, but the way that they told it and the themes they were using uh, helped to kind of stand apart from the plethora of other movies that tell this story. Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Hit List Podcast. A podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. I'm joined today by a returning guest from Season 1, James Couchet. Welcome James, it's good to have you back on the show again. Hey Jason, I've been, uh, I've been dying to know when I'm going to get to come back. How's it going? Doing good, doing good. So for those of you who are listening to Season 3 instead of Season 1, go back and listen to Season 1 and Season 2 and come back here. But for those of you who are too lazy to do that, well, James is an independent filmmaker based out of Virginia, and he's a good friend and mentor of mine. And before we get started onto our the films that we're going to discuss today, James, have your viewing habits changed since last year when you were on the show? You said last year you said that you had about a thousand things on your Netflix list, and you watched mostly TV shows. So are you watching <laughs> more movies now or TV shows? Has it changed at all? I, I would say it's changed ever so slightly. I still watch a fair amount of TV shows, but I have really been diving more into films and also checking things off of my list. A lot of the things I've been surprised by are the net, some of the Netflix original movies, which I, I have thoughts on Netflix's ability to make movies and how the majority of the stuff they put out is forgettable at best. And this year I've in the last couple of months, I've watched three that were surprisingly good. And so now I have to kind of reevaluate Netflix's standing and their ability to make and produce movies. Yeah, I I haven't been watching Netflix too much. I've been using a lot of other apps. Just recently, I started to use Tubi, which, to be honest, oh. I'm a little surprised. I'm a little surprised by like the, the stuff they have on there because I thought since it was free... They wouldn't have a lot of good stuff. They have a few hidden gems here, here and there. I started watching Dark Shadows, the old this old gothic soap opera oh. TV show, and Columbo, which I re- I knew I was gonna like, but I really liked episode three, the one directed by Steven Spielberg, because when I watched that show, is each episode is like a movie, right? But that episode in particular, I really liked because the blocking, the scene direction, the the lighting, all of it, I could like give lessons on. If I were if I were a film teacher, I would give a lesson just based off this episode. And I thought it was like a great example of like everything you you can learn in film school, or just like watching film tutorials on YouTube. And what do you know? It Steven Spielberg directed that episode. I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense because um, we still talk about Jaws in film school to this day. I never went to film school, but I know it's like one of the most talked about movies. So. Yeah, and as far as like Netflix, I do agree with you. A lot of its stuff is like forgettable. It's made to be forgettable because I think earlier this year they said they're going to release a new movie every week. I haven't seen it. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm too interested in watching it because I don't watch older stuff. But yeah, that's kind of how I feel about Netflix. Honestly, Tubi has become my new obsession. Uh, just it's it's just the most random assortment of films and tv shows things that you kind of half remember from back in the day hearing about or see you saw a clip of it on like hbo and that was about it on the opposite end of the spielberg episode of columbo uh a friend of mine Catherine, we are huge fans of watching bad movies and bad tv shows 
and we discovered the late 90s superhero show Nightman. And everything you just said about uh, Spielberg's episode of Columbo, the polar opposite could be said of Nightman. <laughs> I have never seen a show so badly shot and with such awful production values and and special effects. They seriously overestimated their ability with uh, the blue screen. But it's just this great... Um, it's, it's a masterclass in how not to make things. Right. <laughs> um, entire scenes will play out in close-ups. So you have literally no idea what room the characters are in. And all I can think is that it's because they couldn't afford to build a full set. So they just shot everything in close-up to avoid showing the, the holes in the wall. But yeah, I, I, I've been diving deep into that and i found a surprising number of really great indie indie films and indie content on there yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff that's on there and a few modern stuff i think they just had jangle unchained on there as well which is from the last decade but still considered modern it's still close enough in memory that's modern but i think they just they had to let it go because i guess like the license expired or whatever but yeah. yeah, if you if you guys um want to watch some free stuff legally, go <laughs> ahead on 2B TV. And the only drawback is that it shows an ad every 12 to 15 minutes. That I much prefer it that way. You know, it's Just like give it's you not, a, a break. Yeah, it's like not. I tried watching Dark Shadows on Pluto TV, which is where I found the show. But they played an ad every three to four minutes, similar to how oh. cable's like. And I was like, no. Ever since Viacom acquired it it's not the same and then i saw it was on tubi and it's a lot better experience there's only like two commercial breaks throughout the whole viewing of one episode and it's not even that long like a minute or so oh absolutely but another service that i've since we last spoke uh we got hbo max which one of the films we're going to discuss today is on that service i love hbo max they got so many like on top of like just a great assortment of movies. They have tons of Criterion films. Yes. Uh, including, they have the entire shower run of Godzilla, which I'm a huge, giant nerd for. But they also have all these just great classics. And I've been diving into uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub series uh, and the Lady Snowblood series. And it's just like, this is, it, it's, Movies that I have been meaning to buy on Blu-ray forever, and now they're just available. Like this is this is great. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you have like what your experience has been with HBO Max. I love HBO Max. I just wish the UI was a lot better. Agreed. <laughs> and I I Chromecast it a lot, but it's annoying because like let's say uh, you Chromecast your TV right, and you like close your phone, like you just lock it. Once you try to unlock it again, it says it's offline and it disconnects from your Chromecast. Whereas if you if you don't even like open your phone again, it still plays. That it happens so many times that like eventually I'll just like switch to like another streaming service app and I'll be fine. But I, yeah. I agree the the content is amazing on HBO Max. They have a lot of great stuff, and it's because of like watching Lone Wolf and Cub on HBO Max. I actually bought the Criterion Collection Blu-ray set, uh, and. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to, like, watch Lady Snowblood. So, yeah, they, they have great stuff. Criterion Collection, amazing stuff. And it's just really annoying to use the app. Yes. And to rewind. Yeah. And once they get that app figured out, because I watch it on my Roku, once they get the app figured out, that service is good to, it's going to be unstoppable, just based on pure quality alone. I just love the fact that there's all these classic films that I can now... 
I can now watch. Because Netflix, for all the content they have, it's becoming more and more homogenized. Like, it's more samey. Yeah. They kind of, they do kind of ignore older films. And they also ignore cult films, which bums me out. That's where I, that's why I go to Tubi a lot. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I get more inspiration for, like, older films where they don't all look the same. Like, with the episode of Columbo, they actually make use of, like, the space and the blocking and the lighting. It's such a, it's such a great Spielberg thing, his ability to tell stories in these, like, really elaborate oneers, And you don't notice that they're oneers. They don't call attention to themselves. It's just like, hey, instead of having, cutting from, like, uh, an over-the-shoulder shot to a master shot, why not just move the camera or move the actors to make it happen naturally? And it just kind of creates a flow within the scene that you you don't get when you're just like cutting back and forth. Right. So let's move on to the two films we were discussing today. Uh, two films we were discussing today are The Night Comes For Us, directed by Timo Giganto, and Clutes, directed by Alan J. Pakula. I hope that's how you say his name. I was about to give you a, like, a serious compliment. I'm like, how do you pronounce his last name? This is a running thing with this entire show. I, I always think I say the name right. I don't say the name right. <laughs> <laughs> the Night Comes For Us is a 2018 action thriller film written directed by Timo Giugianto. The film was about a top organized crime enforcer who decides to turn his back on his former life as a killer to rescue a young girl. The crime syndicate sends in a rising gang prospect and legions of thugs to eliminate the enforcer and the young girl. The film stars Iko Uwais, Joe Taslim, Julia Estelle, Sonny Pank, Zach Lee, and Sharifa Danish. This film was on James' list. James, why was this movie on your list? Because literally everything these guys do together is gold. Uh, this is a lot of the same people who worked on The Raid and The Raid 2, as well as a, a movie called Headshot, which from the same director. Um, so, yeah, like, the, just when you hear those names together, you know that it's going to be quality. But I think why, the reason it stayed on my list unwatched for so long was they really kind of played up this the very NC-17 levels of violence. So, you know, I kind of know that if I to see that, I kind of have to be in the right headspace. And it just kind of sat there and sat there. And the funny thing is, when I finally watched it, I don't think it was really that much more violent than one of the Raid movies. Like, maybe a little bit gorier, but... You know, the, for all the, for all just the the big deal they made about the level of violence, it was just a really good action movie that happened to uh, really enjoy the gore. I'd say for me, I had it on my list as well because I knew them from the Raid series. I haven't seen Headshot, but I will put it on my list as I did my research. I saw they also worked together on that. The reason why it's been a while since I've like, and then she sat down to watch it is... I guess I was just busy because around the time this movie came out, I think that was also the time I started school again. So I was too busy to even care. And whenever I would watch something, it'll be something that I knew I would like. So yeah, overall, what'd you think of the movie? Honestly, I really enjoyed it. Anytime the word Netflix is associated with a movie, I always kind of enter with trepidation. Uh, I haven't really liked most of their action movies. They somehow produced the worst Michael Bay movie ever made in Six Underground. <laughs> Yes, I agree. You know, for all the love that Extraction and the Old Guard got, I think they got that love because there was literally nothing else coming out and we had nothing to compare it to. I thought both those movies were incredibly boring. And then this comes along and it's like, 
Okay, maybe it'll be good. And I, I gotta say, it was engaging from start to finish. The story of, you know, a, a tough guy trying to protect uh, a young girl is not a new story. But the way that they told it and the themes they were using uh, helped to kind of stand apart from the plethora of other movies that tell this story. Yeah, I can think of like three other works where uh, a middle-aged man protects like a young child. So it's a not a unique storyline. It's pretty commonly used, but for good reason, because I guess that really sells. That, that kind of story sells. I think it's just a good, it's just a good solid setup. But this movie does a lot different with it. Partly because it's the level of immediacy and kind of the fact that the girl is almost like a MacGuffin in a way. It's more so about like all these people. It's, it's a very much about Joe Taslin's character and Eco Uwaya's character. The, the history that they've had and how by getting involved with the, the triad it kind of puts them at odds and there's this uh, common phrase you can't kill someone who's already dead and you realize what it means is like these guys their lives are over they are they're owned by the triad and i guess in a way it's it's taslam trying to do one last good thing with his life before you know because otherwise it would just been like an existence of just slaughtering people who most times didn't deserve it there was no precocious child moment where they they bond as like you know a surrogate father and daughter that never happens which i was kind of happy about because it's like we we don't need that it wasn't needed i forgot to mention when you said something about netflix adaptations and how you approach it with trepidation i remembered that (laughs) (laughs) i think i know what you're about to say i feel the same way with all these anime adaptations that they're doing (laughs) the live action anime adaptations that no one asked for and the one that i was kind of hoping for hope was when they announced the last airbender live action film because or live action series because the original creators were attached and the one of the reasons why the movies um failed which, by the way, the movie didn't. The movie doesn't exist, so it didn't fail. But if a movie, such movies existed without their involvement, it would have failed. And <laughs> around 2010 or so, is because like the creators weren't involved and they ignored everything that made the series so lovable and just made a terrible film in general. And yeah. after like two years of development, the creators left because they said there were created differences as to what Netflix wanted and what they wanted, and we're like, oh. So this is going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah. And a- another note is like when they did Death Note, I knew it was going to suck. But from what I heard, it sucked even more because the thing with Death Note, the series, the anime series, the reason why it's um, so good is because it doesn't show violence. People just die of a heart attack automatically. That's what makes it macabre. I think that's how you say it, macabre. Yeah, I know it's a French word. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> but in the Netflix movie, they made it more violent. They made it die like in Final Destination ways. But like that's not why people liked it. Now they're trying to do like a One Piece live action movie, and then like the logo, the the flag logo of like the the crew, they made like a live action version of it, even though the logo is in cartoon. <sighs> Stop it, Netflix. So yeah, the Netflix name does not always inspire confidence. Uh, especially when it comes to their movies and when it comes to their adaptations of properties. But yeah, this was this was genuinely surprising. The action was fantastic. 
but it was also very viscerally violent. Lots of blades happening, lots of people being cut open, lots of screaming, lots of people being thrown thrown around, getting hit by cars. They they don't hold back. Like they absolutely use the NC-17 rating for the violence in this movie. But like I said, I don't think it was that much more violent than the raid. <laughs> yeah, I I, I want to say like I like the raid a lot more. Not just because of the violence, because I feel like it flowed better. But yeah. what did you? What are your favorite scenes from the movie? I would say anything with the operator, because yes, uh, yeah. Listen, uh, Julie Estelle, she is yeah. absolutely fantastic in everything she does. But ultimately, I would say any time that any like almost any time that uh, Eco UIS is on camera, the movie is elevated. But as far as as far as particular scenes, I think the last stand of all of Ito's friends, the guys who come to his, the, the old friends who come to his aid, just the, the, the last stand of it and how it's pretty much like they're going to lose and you know they're going to lose and they know they're going to lose and yet they fight on anyway uh, just because of just the, that level of friendship. It's not something you see terribly often. You're not used to seeing that kind of strong loyalty. Right. Even though they all clearly had beef. Uh, that was very much, very much a given. Yeah, I that was a really good scene, as well as like when um, uh, what's his name? Th- his nickname was White Boy, and yeah. he told the <laughs> the guy with the beard who's like, is he like particularly white for Indonesia? Like, is so fr- the actor is of British descent, ah. so I guess they kind of like played on that. But he, I like the scene where they were on the elevator, and he was like walking the woman out. And then he sees, like, stuff is about to go down, and he just, like, kicks her out the elevator, pretending that, like, a domestic couple, and they're having a breakup. And I was like, yo, yeah, he just saved her life. And she's never seen again. Like, she's alive, but... <laughs> safe. But, and then the part where he takes the, the wet floor sign and uses it as, like, a, as body armor. Like, he just starts shooting him, and, like, he just stands up, takes it out of his shirt, and throws it on the ground, like, oh... Well, that was actually that was a that was a straight up Clint Eastwood move. Good on you, man. Yeah, and I was like, that's very awfully convenient that the the sign is made of metal because the only signs <laughs> I've seen of those are made of plastic. And yeah. if we use that as body armor, uh, it it probably would have worked as well just as like any toy armor you could have worn as a kid. And what's even worse is I think it was actually on carpet. So <laughs> like this is the like. Okay, so you have a wet floor sign that's on carpet, happens to be made of metal. I like I like the contrivance. Good good on you guys. <laughs> it's very, very bold. But yeah, I, I kind of am also happy that I waited to watch this. because uh, I didn't yet have appreciation for uh how awesome Joe Taslin is. Cause you know, he was like the secondary lead in the first raid movie and he gets killed. He was a henchman in Fast and Furious Six. But after watching the the first two seasons of Warrior and seeing him in the new Mortal Kombat, and just kind of getting us and kind of learning more about this dude. Like apparently he was like an Olympic level judo practitioner before he got into mm. movies. So getting to see him now, after knowing all that about him, I was I kind of went in primed to like be on board with him. And yeah, he really he really knocked it out of the park with his character and with this movie. And I think that he is I, I, eco obviously got top billing on this movie but i really really do think that uh joe taslim is very underrated and needs to be in more stuff definitely i i agree with you there so i want to talk about the the apartment scene with the operator versus the two henchwomen 
That was the best fight in the movie. I think that scene stole that scene stole the movie because like every scene she was in, I liked it a lot more than like everything else. Not that it wasn't bad. Not that it was um it was bad and like only her scenes. That she just like raised it. And I was like, this is amazing. And I I didn't know her name. Uh, her her handle was the operator. So I wrote in my notes, this Batwoman chick is amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, we need to see more of her. Like, she's amazing. I, and yeah. I'm happy to hear that they're making a sequel of her character called The Night of the Operator. So it's still, it's still in development. That does make me happy. Because, like, the first time any of us saw her was as Hammer Girl in The Raid 2. Right. And it's like, I guess she came in not really, she wasn't a martial artist when she came into that movie. And yet she stole every scene she was in. And... In this movie, she steals every scene that she's in. I, I can't think of a more movie star, movie star than Julia Estelle. And mm-hmm. yeah, she needs to like they need to just give her like give her movies, like give her real movies, and just let her go because that's she's amazing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Honestly, I think it was just a really, really good, really contained film. I, I kind of like the immediacy of the fact that it, it all takes place over a very short span of time. It could have fallen into a whole lot of cliches and traps, but it never did. I also like the fact that it didn't really hold back with just kind of like the violence and the consequences of violence. Because I remember a discussion about the new Suicide Squad movie uh, that I just happened to be on on Discord. And a whole bunch of people like, yeah, it was so violent. It was like shockingly violent, like really, really, really rough. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, that's right, Grandma. It it was really violent, huh? And all I can think is like, man, we are very, American audiences, we are very, we're we're coddled. When it comes to the, the cinematic violence we create, we love the body count, but we don't like to think about the consequences of the violence. Right. Whereas in like, in places like Indonesia and South Korea, especially South Korea, they do play it up. I've been kind of like doing doing bits of research on this. Uh, have you ever seen The Man from Nowhere? A long time ago, I wouldn't remember too much the details about it, though. But do you remember the knife fight at the end where he's just taking out all those dudes? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. It's this really, really intense, really, really visceral fight. And for the longest time, I'm like, what makes it so visceral? Like, yeah, it's violent, but I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I realized, like, oh... It's because when he cuts these guys, they scream in agony. Like, it's just screaming bloody murder. And then I went and I turned on the English language track just to see if it was different. And I noticed that they toned down the... They toned that part down. Like, because mm. in American action movies, when you stab somebody, they have the courtesy to just die. And they don't scream. <laughs> they, don't, they don't yell. They don't bleed out. Same thing when you shoot them. But in Korean movies, it's like... No, if you slash somebody's arms open with a knife, they're gonna, that, that hurts. They're going to be screaming in pain. <laughs> in America, if you slash someone's arms open with a knife, they're just going to conveniently pass out and die. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, the way, that, the way that Americans make action movies and the way that Indonesians and South Koreans make action movies are very different. Right. And I kind of I prefer this. I, I really do prefer this uh, approach to cinematic violence just because... Yeah, like it, when when you get stabbed, when you get shot, it hurts. <laughs> There's pain. When you get stabbed, it hurts. Going through what these guys did, no human can endure what they endure. But still, I just kind of prefer this style of action versus even John Wick, which might sound sacrilegious for an action fan, but I, I said it. <laughs> yeah, that, I was also thinking the same thing because I wrote an essay 
for like applications and everything. How in like in American films, it feels like the people in power. It's like an allegory of people in power. So like the heroes are kind of like the people in power, and the people they kill are like kind of like the lower class. Where it doesn't matter how much damage the hero causes, it doesn't matter how many people they kill, they're never going to be in trouble. They're never going to have any consequences. So I was just thinking like it's the same thing right there. Like you never see the consequences of their violence. You never see yeah. how it affects the community or anything like that. Well, and, and the one time, oh sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. So I think this <clears throat> the most stark and like most SEO algorithm friendly way of talking about this is the difference between Man of Steel and The Avengers. So I remember back when these movies were kind of like making the rounds, they were both super popular. People were not happy about the Metropolis battle in Man of Steel, but they absolutely loved the um, battle for New York and Avengers. And there was this comparison of, you know, The Avengers, they, they prevented a lot of collateral damage. Like, no, they just didn't focus on it like yeah. man of steel showed what a super powered battle would look like from the perspective of ordinary people who were caught in the, the middle of it including the opening of batman v superman there, there, there were consequences to it whereas avengers is like well we're not going to focus on all these people who are losing their homes and losing their lives and loved ones we're just going to focus on the heroes and their one-liners and maybe a couple years later someone will get a stern talking to about it and that'll be the end of it and it was really kind of interesting watching audiences reject the way that Man of Steel wanted to present that kind of a battle and really embrace the whole like escapist version that Marvel gave because it didn't show any consequences at all. And it mm -hmm. just allowed you to enjoy just mass destruction without really thinking about it. Yeah, that's I should have used that example in the essay. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a per perfect example of what, I, what I'm trying to talk about because... Um, you're right. They don't show any consequences in the Avengers. They they kind of show a little bit of it in like Infinity War and Endgame, but not too much. Like mm -hmm. the five years in between, they don't show that. At yeah. least I'm not sure if they showed it in Black Widow or whatever. I'm not sure if they ever will. They might show like what happens after everyone comes back, but not what happened in between. If that makes sense. Yeah, they conveniently time jump. So you don't have to think about it. That you don't have to really think about the moral implications of anything. And it does kind of bother me. Like, we are so... We, we love violence to the point of genocide. But the minute you show someone, like, no, this is what it's doing to people. They immediately shut down. We, we, got, we got a whole face full of that with uh, the pullout of Afghanistan. Like, yeah, this is this is what this war has cost these people. And how many people just kind of tuned out or rejected it? They just don't want right. to they just don't want to deal with it. But, you know, we still we still love our, our war machine. But yeah, it, like it, that extends within within film. We don't want to see what it cost, what the, the cost of all this enjoyable violence is. And I'm not saying you have to for every movie, but when every single movie is trying to, like, let the audience off eventually it, it forms a pattern let's talk about the production side of this film <laughs> really <Yes>. rough 180 <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's 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 lighten the mood and talk about cameras and stuff so i want to talk a little bit about the director timo chajanto so he's an indonesian film director and producer and screenwriter known for his works on the horror and action genres so the night comes from us is based on a screenplay he wrote as an homage to hong kong 1980s cinema and the film was the first Netflix original production from Indonesia and received acclaim from critics with a 91% score on Rotten Tomatoes. And in February 2021, Jujanto was announced to helm a remake of South Korean blockbuster hit Train to Busan 
with James Wan producing for New Line Cinema. So I guess we, we both have feelings about remaking foreign films for American audiences because they're going to do the exact same thing we just discussed <laughs> about the consequences. <laughs> when every, every time we keep saying consequences, you know what I think of? What's that? Uh, you know that Kim Peele sketch where um, Jordan Peele, he, he's like a cholo. He comes in and talks to like high school students. You remember that one? I th- maybe. Oh, God. Uh, it's a hilarious one where he's basically like saying like all these outrageous things that don't connect with each other. And he keeps saying, consequences, man. <laughs> oh, God. I shot up my, my, I shot up my own sister's quinceanera, man. I made a piano fell on my head. I got 81 concussions, one per key. Consequences, <laughs> man. <laughs> so, and that's the weird thing. Like, mo- a lot of times I am very uh, iffy on, like, uh, remakes of foreign films. But sometimes, some really great movies are remakes. Like, True Lies is a remake of a French film. Really? I only recently found this out. I think that if you're going to do a remake of a foreign film, it's hard to balance, like, appreciation for the source material versus making it its own thing. Because there's... If, you, if all you're going to do is remake the original shot for shot, you're just reading... You're making it for people who can't handle subtitles. And, right. you know, at that point, you might as well just make it its own thing. I think that um, Timo is a good choice for remaking The Train to Busan. Uh, also because he clearly, clearly has chops for, for uh, graphic violence. But also, he's really good at these, like, really hard-boiled, very high-tension stories. Because Headshot was also kind of the same way. Like, you you spent the entire movie feeling very uneasy as you're watching what's going on. Like, there's no guarantee that the hero is going to have a happy ending. And it made the movie way more engaging. Yeah, definitely. So, around the pre-production, I guess, like, the writing, The Night Comes for Us was in the works for a long time. And after writing the screenplay, Timo DiGiantel halted the production for a while, likely due to like budget cuts, and turned it into a graphic novel instead. And in his 2014 tweet, he wrote, "Thanks for the sorrow." And I find that really interesting that like he couldn't make it when he wanted it because of budget cuts, so he made it into a graphic novel. So a pretty good adaptation. I think it. I haven't seen any of the how do you say any images for a graphic novel, but pretty good idea. If your screenplay doesn't make it, turn it into a book. Yeah, honestly, I kind of, I really have to applaud that. It seems to be kind of a tradition of uh, great Indonesian filmmakers because it happened to the, the guys who made The Raid also. They wanted to make what would have ultimately become The Raid 2, but they couldn't afford it, so they decided to make a different movie that became The Raid, and that turned out to be so popular that they retooled the script for Barandal into a sequel to The Raid. Wow. And it seems like with this, yeah, he ran into money problems, but rather than just like, all right, just toss the script and move on, you know, he believed in it enough to just switch mediums. And that, I mean, it may have been popular enough to help, you know, gain more, like, financing for this movie. Yeah. So, before the film was riddled with production issues, a much different cast was planned early on, and this included stuntmen like Sisip Arif Rahman, Rahman and Yayan Ruhian, which we both uh, know from The Raid. And John Wick 3. Yeah, John Wick 3 as well, The Raid series. And Ruhian, he had a very small role in Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, which I'm going to talk about real quick, because I told you before recording, I, mean, I want to talk about this. Yes. But this is such wasted potential to have a skilled and talented martial artist and stuntman to have them cast in your film, make an announcement, make a press release that they're on your film, that they've, they've been on the raid and now they're going to be on Star Wars, and then waste them by having like some sort of monster, space monster, eat them up in the first, 
within the first five minutes that they're introduced. I really hated that part of the movie. And that was one of the problems I had with The Force Awakens. Like, you really wasted your potential. I hate you, J.J. Abrams. I hate you. <laughs> there are so many reasons to hate J.J. Abrams. But yeah, that's definitely one of them. When I saw Iko and uh, Yaya just kind of show up, like, oh, that's cool. And Iko doesn't do anything. He shows up, he stands there, and then the monster attacks. At least Yayan got, he got to run around with a gun. But yeah, that could have been literally just two random stuntmen. At the very least, when they brought them in for the rate for John Wick 3, they really did make use of their skills. Right. Whereas with, with Star Wars, it's just like, hey, cool reference. Um, but that's, that's kind of a, a weakness that Abrams has. He doesn't really tell stories. He just like puts together a, a collection of references and expects your brain to do the rest. Yeah, let's let's trash talk J.J. Abrams real quick. I've talked about this before on season one of the podcast. I like his mystery, the mystery box method. But the mystery box method sounds like a great exercise, but you shouldn't do that when you have a series and you don't know what you're doing while you're still writing and filming the series. So I guess the reason why people liked Lost was because of the mystery that when they found out, I guess when they found out that he didn't know at, um, that what was going on either, like, what the hell are you writing writing this for then? <laughs> like, dude, what's going on? How did you get this job? And then you realize, oh, he's connected. Yeah, it's, it's what happens when you have an uncle who works for the studio. You don't have to learn things like, you know, making sure you have an ending in mind before you start telling the story. But if you really want to dive into just how not great he is, Patrick H. Willems on YouTube he produced a video where, in the lead-up to Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, tried to figure out, hey, Abrams has never, ever seen anything through to completion except one thing, the show Felicity. And so Willems watches the entire series of Felicity in hopes of figuring out how Abrams is going to finish up the Star Wars series. And the it's weird, but the prediction he makes at the end is eerily accurate like it's like wow abrams really does not have anything to say as a storyteller inexplicably like i've liked some of his movies but it's he they're always the ones where he's either like pulling from somebody else's ideas or in the case of super 8 he's copying spielberg like he doesn't really have a personality of his own he's just a you know a dude yeah and that's what i felt like when i saw super 8 for the first time which is also last year when like pandemic first started and i thought i had a free time but free time turned into oh no no time yeah i saw that movie i'm like this oddly feels like et mm-hmm. yeah it was it was stranger things before stranger things mm-hmm. but yeah it literally just feels like spielberg so what i heard when i was doing research for this I heard that the toughest part for them to film was the final fight, which was actually was one of the first things that they shot within the first two weeks of shooting. So first they shot the apartment raid scene, and then right after that, they went into the final fight between Joe and Iko. And that final fight is like 10 minutes. It goes on for a while. Uh, and the girl, the girl's fight, also in, like, in another department, has more lighting. And it's meant to show more energy. And Timo said that there's supposed to be more, something more youthful about it, and it's meant to be showy. But yeah, you were say something about the final fight? Yeah, so I, I got to see Scott Adkins interviewing Joe Taslim about this fight, and apparently, like, they got they got hurt. <laughs> they got hurt a lot while making that fight. And you can tell because it's a lot harder to make a sloppy-looking fight. If you're just making, like, a, a Jackie Chan style, everything is very clean, clean lines, clean hits, clean moves. 
that's a lot easier and a lot safer than what we saw, what you see at the end of this film, where they're falling, they're stumbling, they're slamming into things, they're 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 tripping. Like somebody could easily break an ankle doing some of this stu- just basic stuff. So the whole time I'm watching that and I'm just thinking, I'm just feeling bad for these guys because you know, like when I, when I saw at one point I see Joe like slipping on, like tripping on some pipes and I'm like, oh man, like he could have broken his ankle there. <laughs> just, just in that. And there you go. You have to like pause the filming. Yeah. You, you can feel the pain in that fight but the the fight that the operator has with the uh the two assassins it was a much cleaner much more stylized sequence the weapons work was was very good i actually rewatched it on slow motion it's really complex choreography and it's very just the, the lighting that they use and the location changes it's just striking but overall what was your uh what what was your opinion or are we going to say the opinions for uh the very end yeah so my opinions on the movie is I'm not sure if I've grown as a moviegoer, as a filmmaker, because I used to love action movies. Like that was all I would watch. I wasn't too much too much of a big fan of this movie. Like I I, I can admit the choreography and the production was really really well done. Like I, I admire that aspect of it. But together as a film, I don't think it flowed too well. The story could have been worked on better. And I like the character interactions. Like they showed one flashback scene of like the the friendship group before the events of the movie took place. And I liked that a lot more because it just showed them being regular people. And if we had a little bit more of that, I think the violence would have seemed a lot more violent. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at right here? Yeah. So I actually, that that was actually kind of interesting to me because I, I also, I, I, I love action movies. I make action movies, and, but most action movies these days bore me to tears. This one didn't, but it does, I admit, it does have problems. There was a part of me that was actually kind of intrigued by the fact that we didn't start really learning about some of the characters until after they had died. Right. Um, which is not something you see often in movies. It was a really neat kind of way of, of telling the story. It's like, oh, now you look back on, now you look back on all of them. I was like, oh, well, that, that was a, more of a loss than you realized. More of a loss than you were willing to think about. It was one of those, it did things that were different. It tried things, it experimented. It didn't always work out. But I almost prefer an ambitious movie that falls short than a really safe movie that plays a movie that plays it safe and gets it all right because it doesn't really try anything. Yeah, I I would say I did not enjoy this more than the Raid movies. I probably enjoyed it more than Headshot though. Do you think you should have seen this movie sooner or later, or like was this the right time? I think this was the right time. Uh, I didn't have enough appreciation for Joe Taslam before. So at this point, I was able to be like, no, this guy's actually really good. And aside from, like, his really questionable hairstyles in every movie. Because, <laughs> no, he's he's actually a very, he's a good-looking guy, but they always give him the dumbest haircuts in all of his movies. So he just kind of looks a little bit... He doesn't... He doesn't they're almost like trying to downplay how handsome he is. And I'm like, guys, why are you... Don't. Just don't do that. But yeah, I don't think I, I don't know if I would have had the same experience had I not seen Warrior and had I not seen interviews with him and realized like no this this guy is a star in his own right and he absolutely deserves first billing and he did an amazing amazing job with his character. And now a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. Clute is a 1971 American neo-noir crime thriller directed and produced by Alan J. Pakula. 
written by Andy and Dave Lewis. The film follows a high-priced call girl who assists a detective in solving a missing persons case. It was it is the first installment in what was informally come to be known as Pakula's Paranoia Trilogy. The other two films are The Parallax View and All the President's Men. The film stars Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, Charles Kioffi, and Roy Scheider. The movie was on Jason's list. Jason, why was this movie on your list? So it hasn't been on my list too long. Yeah, I think it was July. There was the Criterion Collection sale at Barnes & Noble where like all Criterion Collection Blu-rays and DVDs were half off. And I was looking at a list of like stuff I wanted to get. I eventually got Lone Wolf and Cub series. The Sword of Doom, which I talked about with David in the last episode, and Police Story 1 and 2, because they came together. But when I was looking at the list, I also saw Clute was among them, and I'm pretty sure I've seen Clute referenced in other films you should watch lists, if you know what I mean. And I'm pretty sure I've seen it in like this book I was reading, How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck. <laughs> Very good book, by the way. If you're learning filmmaking, get that book. It's a, it's a great resource. I still use it to this day. In the back of the book... He gives out recommendations for films, and he, he lists it by the year they're released. Early films, like, from the 1900s all the way to, like, present, which for then, it was, like, around 2011 when he mm -hmm. wrote the book. I'm not sure if it was on that list, but I'm pretty sure Clute was on there. But, yeah, basically, I've seen it on a list somewhere, and I was just interested in watching it after seeing that it was in the Criterion Collection. And wasn't this an Oscar winner, I want to say? Yes. Jane Fonda won... Best Actress at the Academy Awards for this movie. She absolutely deserved it. Her performance was amazing in this film. Great cast. I, I was really amazed by this movie. What was really surprising to me was, number one, seeing a young Donald Sutherland. Was, I'm, like, I'm so used to seeing him as an old man. But um, Same. I wrote that down too. <laughs> the fact that, like, yeah, he's the namesake of the film, but this is very much uh, Jane Fonda's movie. Right. Yeah, her character goes through a lot goes through a lot in this film a lot of changes we kind of get her a sense of her mindset she really seems to drive the plot whereas Clute's just kind of almost like a blank slate uh to the point where he's all it almost feels like he doesn't have any personality because she just has so much yeah it's a it's one of those things where like whenever there's like a pair or duo uh, in a film there's one who's always serious there's one who's always funny or has more personality and i felt yeah like you said I guess the reason this movie works is because Clute doesn't have a personality, and Jane, Jane Fonda's character, Brie, has all the personality. Great contrast right there. And getting to see Roy Scheider show up as a pimp was... I'm sorry, Roy Scheider elevates everything he's a part of. Even the worst of things. But yeah, seeing him show up and is like trying to play legit at first, and then suddenly it's like, oh, no, dude's a pimp. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, well, this is something new. But yeah, he, he really kind of brings an intensity to it. And the whole movie, I'm just thinking, don't try to have a fist fight with Roy Scheider. Don't try to have a fist fight with Roy Scheider. And then Clute just beats up Roy Scheider like it's nothing. Like, oh, well, that was disappointing. Right. Because <laughs> Scheider is like, Scheider was an amateur boxer. And also a very, uh, kind of a temperamental actor i guess when he was making jaws 2 he got so frustrated with the director he like slammed him into a wall wow uh which it's not easy to throw a grown man into a wall against his will and scheider who just looks like a little uh, a sinewy block of muscle just tossed him so yeah i, I was a little bit i'm a bit disappointed by the fight that they had it was probably might have been the one of the worst fight scenes i've ever seen but, <laughs> but this movie 
This movie really fascinated me from a filmmaking perspective because I don't really have a lot of knowledge of 70s of American 70s cinema, at least not from that particular era, maybe late 70s. But there were a lot of things that really jumped out at me as like, and I don't know if it quite jumped out at you, but there were a lot of instances where you could tell they wanted to do things, but they didn't quite have the cinematic language for it yet. Like when you transition to the very beginning of the movie from this crowded, happy dinner party to them talking to the cops after their friend Tom goes missing, mm-hmm. it was like, that that feels like that needed an audio transition, but they didn't know how to do that yet. <laughs> so we just got a hard cut from one scene to another with no real explanation. And there were so many instances in this movie where you kind of realize like the limitations on a technical level, but also an artistic level that existed in the early 70s. Like, we were still four years away from having the Steadicam when this movie was made. Right. And you can really see it. Like, the compositions are great, The but it's all very kind of utilitarian. And I'm just kind of thinking... I spent the whole movie thinking, like, yeah... Because my familiarity is more with Japanese cinema. And the movies that some of those filmmakers were making were absolutely gorgeous and way more technically complex and artistically complex than than this. Uh, so I might be a bit harder on it than you are. Yeah, I love that abrupt cut at the beginning of the movie. Like you just discussed, where like it's like a whole family dinner, and they cut immediately to them questioning her, like, where do you think he disappeared to? I like that cut. I don't think it necessarily needed an audio transition either. The abruptness is what makes it great, in my opinion. It kind of left me disoriented for a second. Like, wait, what? what's happening? Like, oh, okay. Oh, he's in a... I, I just kind of get the sense that... I don't know. I, f- I feel like there would have been a more effective way to make that transition. But that's just that's just my, my own personal op- opinion on that. What was your favorite scene in this movie? The one that particularly stood out to me was when... Clute and Brie are like kind of like in the apartment together, I think for the first time. And then Clute hears something on the roof and he leaves her there and goes out to find out who it was. And the whole chase through that, throughout the whole darkness is what really intrigued me because I, I don't think I've seen that before. Like chasing something through the darkness, but it makes it look good because it's a film noir. So they knew what they were doing yeah. with the lights and to make it look good. I felt a sense of like creepiness and uneasiness when I was like watching it. And then when he doesn't catch him, it's like, Wow, that he he almost got him. He almost got him. It really does put you in in his head. Like there's only so much that he can see. But that was actually my favorite scene too. My favorite part of that scene was actually when they're first in the apartment and you can't see their faces. You can kind of see effectively their torsos as she starts she's trying to seduce him and then he tells her someone's on the roof and just through their body language and their acting there was just like wow, this is really effective and really artsy and I think that was probably the highlight. That that whole sequence was the highlight of the movie for me because of they, how they used editing and sound and the camera and light to really give you that sense of unease. This tends to happen a lot with earlier films where most of the movie kind of feels ordinary and then there's like one sequence where they're really experimenting and they're really pushing the medium forward because it was still very much a, a maturing medium back then. I also liked the music for this film as well, and I was intrigued to hear that like the, the composer, this is only his second film to compose for, and the director really took a chance with like hiring someone who was relatively unknown in the industry. Where I really liked the music was when she was meeting one of her clients, I think it was at like a fashion factory or whatever, mm-hmm. 
She's like selling a lie, you know, that's what she does. She pretends that she's like a more high society than she really is. But I think that's part of like, part of like why they like her. Cause I, maybe they're in on it, maybe they're not. And she's like telling this story as she's stripping, but like the music is what really entranced me. And I was like, oh, there's some really good music right here. I don't know how to describe the music. I'm not very good at des- describing music in general, but I really like that one. I, th- I think some of my favorite bits of, of Jane Fonda's acting in this was when she was speaking to her therapist and she's talking about the, the desire to go back and doing and, and tricking because when you're trying to become a model or an actress, you're literally in a room f- with people who just don't want you. Mm. It's like they, they kind of really show how awful it is. Like, you know, the, the, when, when they're going down the line of, of models and it's like, oh, well, not her. She doesn't look exotic enough. Oh, no, she's been in something else. Uh, no, you're too fat. Um, when they're all like gorgeous women, you know, her talking about like, at least when she tricks, she's in a room with someone who wants her. And right. it was like, wow, there's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of honesty. And I thought that was like, that, that kind of hit me like, so in that, in that moment, you really get her character. And it was just such an effective way of, of conveying that to the audience. Yeah. So I've done a little bit of modeling for like some of my friends for like their photos. I think someone pointed out as well, like when they first started modeling, they got insecurities about stuff that they didn't even know they had. <laughs> if that makes <laughs> sense. Like they discovered, they discovered insecurities about themselves by going inside the industry. And that's a very unique way of saying it. And this is like a great way of showing what that kind of seems like. And they say it right in front of you too. Like, okay, rude. I can't change that. But okay. Yeah. And something that you said, I forgot what it was. Hold on. Rewind the tape. Uh. Ah, uh. <laughs> oh, shit. I forgot. You said something about like tricking, honesty. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when, when she's tricking, she's in a room with someone who actually does want her. But... I, I gotta say, <clears throat> um, it was actually kind of disappointing at the end when she fell in love with John Clute. Oh, oh yeah, I remember what I was gonna say. I remember. Okay, yeah. so the therapist scenes, like the the uh, the tapes of her doing that, it was originally going to be a man that was like her therapist, but Jane Fonda mentioned to the director that she doesn't feel like her character would be so open talking to a man about this about these things, so they changed it to a woman. And another interesting thing is that like they those were the last things that they filmed. Because she wants to develop her character enough to know her character. So that by the time they finish filming like all the initial scenes, they can then film the therapist scenes. So that's a really interesting way of like hearing about that. That like they changed the therapist from a man to a woman and they filmed it after they filmed like the majority of the of the film. That's a really good plan actually, because actors don't always have like a firm sense of their character right off the bat. Sometimes you you really do have to find it as you're inhabiting that that person. But yeah, I after after kind of learning about this character and kind of seeing like a, a surprising portrayal of a sex worker uh, in the early '70s, when in the in 2021 we're we're still very very horrible to sex workers and we're still pretty bad to women too in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a bit disappointing though when she's like, "Oh yeah, it all amounted to her falling in love and like having John Clute make an honest woman out of her." Like that's just. It's it's an ending, I guess, but it almost kind of cheapened her character. It's just like out of out of nowhere, she just falls in love with this dude who has no personality. <laughs> I think it's kind of left ambiguous, in my opinion. Like she even said to the therapist, she's not sure how long it will last. Like she's she doesn't think it will last. She doesn't think she'll be like a stay at home wife. 
and meeting the neighbors and everything. And then she even says to the therapist, I might see you next week. So it's kind of like up to the audience. Like, do, do they think that she stayed with him or not? But also the fact that she felt she like kind of like fell for him and was seduced by this no personality man is also kind of odd in itself. Yeah, that was the thing that kind of stood out to me is like that 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 just feels a little bit that feels a little bit cheap. I kind of wonder if that whole line of I might see you next week, if that was Jane Fonda's doing kind of like the speaking to a female therapist as opposed to a male one. Because yeah, that's it. It seems very much like you're taking the, you're taking this sex worker you and you're you're turning her into a, a a good wife and mother. Like, uh, no, that's 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 not cool, guys. It wasn't cool in '71. It's not cool now. Let's talk more about the production side. So about Alan J. Pakula. Yeah, I forget how you say his name. He was actually nominated for three Academy Awards. So best picture for To Kill a Mockingbird, best director for All the President's Men. And best adapted screenplay for Sophie's Choice, and I I was like really intrigued to hear that he he did um To Kill a Mockingbird because that's also one of my favorite films and books. Oh yeah. So in 1971 he started he made this movie and came to be known as like the Paranoia trilogy. The film was followed in 1974 by The Parallax View, starring Warren Beatty. It's a labyrinthine post Watergate thriller involving political assassinations, and it's been noted for its experimental use of hypnotic imagery and a celebrated film within a film sequence in which the protagonist is inducted into the Parallax Corporation, whose main, although secret, enterprise is domestic terrorism. And then in 1976, he rounded out the trilogy with All the President's Men, based on a best-selling account of the Watergate scandal by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Have you ever seen that one? No, I actually haven't seen that one. I've heard of it, though, because it has Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. I, I saw it, I think, about a year or two ago. And it's fantastic. I, I wonder like how much research was done because you really do get a sense of this is what a 70s newsroom was like. This is how you had to be as a as a journalist back then. I would I would hardly call like uh, you know extreme paranoia, but it's this great search for the truth. Uh, it also makes a great companion piece to. Uh, was it The Post by Steven Spiel by Steven Spielberg? But yeah, I didn't realize that he made that uh, he had made that movie as well. That's something that I've been like trying to do as well. Like watch more movies from the seventies. I feel like there's more. How do I say inspiration I can get from those when I can from like mostly modern movies like from the aughts and the tens. Not that I don't like them. There's plenty of great movies, but I feel like I can get more inspiration from inspiration. Doggy, why? <laughs> If I let him out of my room, he's going to start barking. I know it for a fact. But yeah, I can, I can get more inspiration and a little bit of plagiarism from <laughs> older, older movies. Well, it's the equivalent of going back to the well. If you take a lot of newer movies as inspiration, you're basically making a copy of a copy. If you look at a lot of like the Mission Impossible movies, they're doing this exact same thing. They're going back to movies of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And sometimes they're wholesale pulling things straight from them. And yeah, this it's... I, you know, you want to tell it to every every aspiring filmmaker, like, yeah, you know, you can you can try to be like everybody else right now, but you really do have to go back and and see like where did all this stuff come from? Go to the well and see what you pull from it instead of copying what someone else pulled from it. Yeah, and this is like something a discussion I have with like I I, I make this mistake very often, not as often as I used to, where I engage in quote-unquote discussions on social media. There are no discussions happening on social media. It's just a screaming contest. Yeah, it's just a screaming contest. And there was a post where someone said, like, 
10 most influential films in American film history. And it, and it showed like a bunch of older films, like the 20th century. And one person said, why don't you guys do um, Pulp Fiction? Why don't you guys do Pulp Fiction? That's an inspirational movie or like influential movie. And I said like, listen, Quentin Tarantino pulled inspiration from for that movie from other films, those films. So like, it was a whole thing. And he said like, nah, but like people get more influential influence from him. And I'm like, yeah. And what happened after Pulp Fiction was like, you got a bunch of stuff in the 90s that looked exactly like Pulp Fiction, but they weren't as good as Pulp Fiction. And it was a whole argument that lasted the whole day. I'm like, you know what, dude, just go outside and touch some grass. You're, you spend too much time online. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, Pulp Fiction was incredibly influential in the 90s, especially with the way that, you know, you portrayed movie violence. And also afterward, literally everybody and their kid brother came up with uh, a heist movie script and they tried to pull influence from it. But it does suck because, like, you really do have to go back and see where that stuff came from. Like, everybody who loved Kill Bill, I had to explain, like, yeah, um, I could show you where they got this stuff. And those other people back in the day did it better. But, yeah, like, Tarantino's movies, his whole filmography is just a hodgepodge of inspirations from earlier films. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I just wish that more, uh, more filmmakers would, would do that. There were a lot of really great ideas back in the day that were maybe held back by technology or were they weren't at a point that we are at now where we can do almost infinite things. So let's start like mining the past and really kind of take those ideas and bring them to their their full potential. Right. So I want to talk about Jane Fonda real quick. Mm -hmm. So according to her autobiography, she hung out with call girls and pimps for a week before beginning this film in order to prepare for a role. But when none of the pimps offered to represent her, she became convinced that she wasn't desirable enough to play a prostitute and urged the director to replace her with her friend Faye Dunaway. And he refused to do so and kept her on the, on the film. I was just thinking, like, why would you want a pimp to represent you? <laughs> like, you're doing this for a movie. You're doing this for a movie. This is not real life. You don't have to do this, Jane Fonda. That's, oh man, that's so... Yeah, but it's one of those, like, the the insecurities you never thought you would have. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm just like that that is very very telling. And also one of her main, main one of her first concerns was that she as a feminist should not even be playing a prostitute. And she confided this concern to a more long-standing feminist who disabused her of this notion. And to get the past the sense that she just wasn't hooker material, she turned to her memories of several call girls she had known while living in France, all of whom worked for her famed Madame Claude, who, this woman, has her own Wikipedia page. She remembered that all of them had been sexually abused as children, and Fonda used this as an entry to her own character and as a way to understand Bree's motivations in becoming a prostitute. So, Jane Fonda. Yeah, I mean, fantastic actress. Still, still very much in the game. That, that is interesting, and it's really interesting that... Because you really did get the sense that she was approaching this from the perspective of a feminist and trying to kind of, like, parse out the conflicting feelings of kind of being a sex worker and having a male pimp and having male clients with kind of the, the power, it, the, the bit of empowerment she was given and that she was able to pull from it. Yeah, I was, I was a bit surprised that they explored that in 1971, especially seeing as how today, like, we still have, we still have issues with that today. Like, uh, OnlyFans wanting to get rid of all explicit content that just oh, wow. happened and then unhappened very recently. But even to this day, we have a very, a very 
weird relationship with it. It's clearly something that has like that has a market. People clearly want it, but we also demonize it. Actually, this is very coincidental. I just listened to a podcast episode of This American Life where they talk about uh, fixing issues in a way doesn't really fix them. And one of the guests on the show, she was sex trafficked when she was like 18 or so. Mm-hmm. And she didn't even know what that was because in the early 2000s, there wasn't really, not really a lot of people knew what that meant. She eventually escaped it after like seven years. And around 2018 or so, or maybe a little before that, Congress introduced a bill that made websites more liable for ads, for prostitution, or like the likes of that. Yeah. And so after that happened, it was a lot harder for federal people to track that, track human trafficking, because they'll do it for other means. The ads disappeared, but the sex trafficking of children, it didn't stop. It was just a lot harder for them to track it. And they asked this woman what they thought it would, um, what happened. She kind of went back to doing it because she couldn't find a job because her, of her charges for prostitution. She couldn't even get a job at the Dollar Tree and Walmart because of those charges. And she was more mad about that because like Walmart, of all places, they rejected me. And she said like when that happened, it was just like a lot less safer for her because she would actually have to go out and find these clients on her own. Yeah. And it's just, they just made it rougher. And because of this law, that's why Tumblr removed sexual content. And you see a lot less stuff like that. And then Instagram, they a lot of people, a lot of sex workers who don't even post explicit content. And if they do, their accounts are banned altogether because um they instagram and other websites don't want to be held liable for potential of breaking this law and i think that's kind of why OnlyFans went with that move and it quickly said no and that was just like really funny to see like sex workers built your shares they built your company from the ground up and you want to ban that shit from your website but i i can see like where where it's coming from yeah it's it's morality laws we're gonna like we're gonna say we're gonna fight human trafficking when in fact is literally just enforcing morality laws. Yeah. If anything, you're making it less safe. It actually does make things worse. But you know, morality and you know, virtue, virtue and whatnot. Like it's, it's it's so it's so stupid and it's it's really kind of upsetting that we're still we're still here. You know, we still treat sex workers as like lesser humans. Like when uh, it came out, when all of uh, Ron Jeremy's sexual assault, his his history of sexual assault came out because it was against women working in the porn industry. People were a lot less sympathetic to his victims. Mm. Just and that was that was the reasoning. Like, oh well, you know, they, this is what they do for a living. How do we know it wasn't there wasn't a financial transaction? Uh, we still have these very weird moral hangups. And it's just another way of, like, victim blaming. It's just another way of enforcing a very narrow idea of morality. And I love the fact that it's, like, it's, this is two uh, cisgender men talking about a, an issue that mostly affects women. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, we're having this, like, man, I feel like, I feel like this would have been better if, like, if your guest was, like, a feminist. Because that would, like, I think a, a feminist would be, give a great... A, a great read on on the movie Clute, especially because, yeah, Jane Fonda was just a very like very vocal uh, feminist through pretty much her entire career. But unfortunately, that didn't happen because I have no, I had no context for this movie whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so, what are your final thoughts on this movie? I've never seen a film like this before. Like I've seen film noirs, but like film noirs from like the forties and fifties, they're not like this movie. And 
it's always what I always imagined films aimed at adults would be when I was younger. And I always thought that would be like a boring thing to watch when I was younger. But now I'm an adult and I'm like, oh, I actually like it now. <laughs> and yeah, there are plenty of plenty of shadows. There was great music. The suspense had me at the edge of my seat. And I really enjoyed that it was from the perspective of the femme fatale, from Jane Fonda's perspective, and something that's not really seen in older film noir. And I can see why this film was in the Criterion Collection. So yeah, I really like this movie. I'm not sure I should have seen it sooner. I, I'm on defense. I'm like, should I have seen it sooner or was this the right time for me to watch it? Because I'm sure I would have liked it five years ago, but I'm not sure if it would have been the right time for me to watch it then, if that makes sense. Yeah. I look at this as like, it was a good film. But I feel like in some ways it's the kind of film that we've grown beyond. I was really hoping for something a little bit more, I guess, art artistically uh, bold, when in fact it was actually very restrained. I think that the best aspect of this, like the, the MVP of the movie is absolutely Jane Fonda. Like she makes right. this entire movie. And I think if they had made, telling from her perspective is what makes it so unique and what makes it so good. Had they tried to show it from the perspective of John Clute, it would have... I don't think it would have worked. Sutherland's a great actor, but his character didn't have enough personality to carry a film. But yeah, the, the entire time watching this, I kept on like thinking like there was those that one scene that was great and is very artistically shot and very well presented with like the uh, seduction followed by the chase scene. That was the best part of the movie for me. But I kept on thinking like I wish that this wasn't quite so restrained. I found myself wishing it was just more cinematic. And given the history of film noir, and that that kind of kept on like jumping out at me, like okay, like this, would, I was literally like watching the evolution of kind of the language of cinema by watching this movie. Like okay, you can see the baby steps of advancement that they had, and even that the director would have. Ultimately, I did, I, I absolutely did like it. And the movie I was hoping it would be versus the movie it was. The movie as it is, what it wants to be, is fantastic. I just couldn't quite get past me wanting it to be a little bit more stylistically bold. And that's the end of our discussion. Thank you, James, so much for being a part of this podcast once more. So, James, can you tell me, did you find the, the, did you find the movies a hit or a miss? Honestly, I think both movies were hits. They weren't perfect, but they were both interesting. And I kind of rate that much higher than just straight perfection. So, yeah, I, I think it was the right time to watch both of these movies. And I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed the experience of watching both. How about you? Um, I'm gonna say Clute was a hit, and The Night Comes for Us. Unfortunately, I'm gonna find that a miss. Oh, that's a miss for me, and I hate that I had to say that because I I loved the choreography, but I had issues with the issues of the movie. Yeah. So they were too much to to ignore. Yeah, and I'll watch it again for the fight choreography, but I didn't say this before. I found the final fight, I found it like it dragged on a little bit too much. Agreed. And I felt like the they missed the beats. Like, I'm not sure how to say this right, but like with Jackie Chan films, they have a certain rhythm to them. This movie didn't have it with the fight choreography. And, that, and it's not that it should have it, but I felt like it was missing. Yeah, that final fight went on way too long. Uh, and it kind of threw off the rhythm. But the fight between the operator and the two assassins before it was damn near perfect. Yeah. Yeah, the, a lot of the other fights in the movie worked better because they didn't overstay their welcome. Whereas that final fight, number one, no two humans can survive what was happening to those guys. It just wasn't, <laughs> no, it's just not realistic at that point. But also, yeah, it just went on too long. And you, 
eventually do start to lose interest. Eventually the momentum starts to slow and you never get it back. So yeah, I absolutely agree. Like I, I was able to look past a lot of the issues of the movie because of its strengths, but I fully acknowledge like that movie did have some some issues. So this is where I had to mention like the moment I felt like I was disinterested in the movie was when I started thinking about other errands I had to run and the fight scenes were still going on. Ooh. That's when I was like, yeah, that's I was like, yeah, this is not going to do it for me. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, I, okay. I, <laughs> it's like, do I need to buy bread? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that should never go through your mind when you're watching a fight scene. That's when you know, like, you know what? I think if they had taken that fight and maybe shave off like four minutes, shave it down to uh, like a still very, very robust six minutes, I think it would have been a lot better. But the, it just, it overstayed. And that's something that as an action filmmaker, you really have to be conscious of. You know, are you, are you dragging this out? Are you, you know, every, every scene has a rhythm. And if it just keeps going on too long, it's like a song that goes on too long. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired now. I would like something different. Yeah. All right. So where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, all under James Couchet. Uh, right now, I am jumping into the final stretch of production on a pandemic-era action thriller uh, called Lost Phoenix. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make every effort not to have my action scenes overstay their welcome quite like the finale of The Night Comes for Us. So far, it's turning out to be a fantastic film, and hopefully, we're able to finish strong and get this knocked out before Christmas. So, for those of you listening, I also helped James produce this film. I was production assistant for one of the shoots because the actor lived closer to where I lived. James knows what he's doing, and. The thing I trust more about him is that the fact that whenever we have shoots together and we have like a plan to time to leave, we either leave at the exact time he stated we we're going to leave or we leave early because we got everything we needed. So I trust him as a director. And if you have $5, fit scene, $30 to spare, please donate to this campaign. If you'd like a limited edition Blu-ray of this film, then please donate $15 because a lot of indie films these days, they don't wind up on Blu-ray. They just live on streaming forever. So to have a physical release of this film might be a very, very limited window to have that. So $15, get a Blu-ray. And if you can, also share this on social media. That, that really goes a long way if you share this campaign on social media. So where can we find this campaign, James? It is on Indiegogo.com. Uh, just do a search for Lost Phoenix movie and it should take you right to it. All right, awesome. That's it for this episode, folks. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hit List Podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Hit List Podcast and Instagram at the underscore hit list underscore podcast. 